You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. You can find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians. That may be one that you're not used to turning to, but we just got done in our little church plant of preaching through First and Second Thessalonians, and it has been a joy. Can you imagine that? When we were sent out of here um, as, a, as a church, uh, a little church plant, we, have, we couldn't see the faces of the people that were going to be there. We had no idea what, would, what was God going to do, and we were just praying, and there was a few people, I think there were like maybe six who came from the church here and a few from other places, and we just began to meet. And some of you were gathering with us to encourage us on, in those early days. And, and now there, there are faces of people that I never knew before. And, and we've gone through Philippians and Titus and now First and Second Thessalonians. And it's like, well, we're, we're a church. It's actually, this is a church. We're gathering. Weekly, I am, I am absolutely amazed. I feel privileged that people show up that people are coming, that the Lord's building a church. It's amazing. Um, the Lord has been very, very gracious and kind to us. Um, uh, it, you need to know, you, your church, this church, you are doing work. The Lord's doing work through you. When I think of you, when I see what's happening here, I, one, I see the huge gospel ministry that's taking a place across the breezeway with LifeGate School huge gospel outreach and ministry that's happening there. And then you, church, gladly sent out, and the Lord used you to plant another church now in southeast San Antonio. The Lord is using you. Let me tell you one small way. I mean, obviously, sending people and sending just precious people to us who are serving, actively participating. If I, could, if I had play a time uh, I, I would just list each one and how God is using the p- precious people that you sent out. Um, you gave generously before we went. You gave, so we left with a storehouse kind of full. We were kind of dragging a little storehouse, and by God's grace, he knew we would need that because we're still living off of that. Um, so the Lord's been very kind in that way. So the Lord has just used you. We had uh, three baptisms earlier this year. One was a a young mom in the church baptized. Her children got to see her baptized. The sweetest thing. Um, so that was earlier. A couple teenagers were about to have another baptism Sunday. And another young mom, another young husband about to be baptized in the church. Precious saints, the Lord is doing work. The Lord is doing work. We, I think I said the, the day, my last time gathering with you, that said, God is on the move. God is on the move. And he still is. He still is. So the Lord is doing wonderful work. He's gathering the lost, um, and he's gathering hungry, the hungry sheep. There are people coming to us who, I, we had a group come from a prosperity preaching church. The Lord began to move in their heart that we think we need truth. And they came, and it was out of that group that that mom was baptized. But I remember seeing one, one uh, guy saying, I'm hearing of grace in a way I've never heard before. Help me understand this. And they're just learning what it looks like to live a Christ-centered life, that Christ really does permeate every part of your life. So we have hungry sheep coming. Out of those hungry sheep, we have Spanish-speaking sheep who are coming. Blows me away. Just incredible. So we have Spanish translation on Sundays now. And so they can come and be fed. It was the sweetest Sunday when we first did it. And there was a, a, a precious young mom who's in the church who speaks primarily Spanish, uh, but has come faithfully, has loved the church along with her little family, and they are Puerto Rican, and seeing her be able to take notes the first Sunday that we had Spanish translation, and her affirming what is being preached is the sweetest thing, sweetest thing. So we have Spanish translation. We're about to launch a Spanish-speaking fellowship group. Our home groups are called fellowship groups. We have two fellowship groups right now, one that meets on the north side and one downtown. We're In the new year, we're planting one on the west side, and then a Spanish-speaking one on the east side. And the Lord's just building. He's doing his thing. We've welcomed new members into the church, people who are just 
committed to living life together and loving community and, and serious accountability. We're just seeing that happen. The Lord just doing wonderful and sweet things. Um, so uh, in that, the Lord has given us some young adults, you know, this little young adult group. Uh, we meet, have them over to our house once a month, and they meet twice a month outside of that to just be discipled. And a little, <laughs> it just blows me away because when we first started, we just didn't have these things. And now we have a little youth parent night that we have. And it's just sweet. We're just seeing the Lord grow and mature people in the Lord. I had a young, one of our young adult guys um, just sitting down with him in a coffee shop the other day downtown and just talking. We got to share the gospel with some people while we were there, but then hearing him say, man, I have grown so much since being a part of this church. I've just grown in the Lord and knowing his word and loving Jesus. What else could we ask for, right? What else could we ask for? So keep praying for us. Keep praying. We know all of that work is not because of personality. It's not because like we're just so cool or hip. We don't have a building. We don't have any of those things. We meet in a movie theater. The Lord provided that so kindly, which is sometimes awkward, you know. But the Lord has been so kind to just build and gather hungry and lost sheep. And that's what we're just keep praying. Lord, build your church, and we just want to see you build and just join in however you want us to work and labor to that end. Amen? So keep praying. Keep praying. So that's our quick update there. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We just pray, pray for us, and, and then we will, we will read beginning in verse 3. Lord, have your way among your church. Have your way. Build your church. May your spirit be upon us. Lord, cause us. Your word, your word says to be filled with the spirit. Lord, may you fill your church with the spirit, Lord. In this a, a, a way in which we are thinking, our minds are set upon you. Our mind, we have the mind of Christ, and so we think in the mind of Christ more fully. That we would speak with the words of Christ more fully, and that we would love what Christ loves more fully. May that be the work of your spirit today. Encourage, build your church, and that you may be exalted, and your church may be healthy in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Follow along with me. I'm going to read chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Verses 3 through 12 are actually like one huge mega sentence in the original language. But we're going to focus in on verses 5 through 12 today. So verses 3 through 12, but we'll focus in on verses 5 to 12. <clears throat> we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And we'll continue on in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 It's a doozy, isn't it? That's a doozy of a passage. A few months ago, my family and I went to West Texas. I'm originally from West Texas, and we wanted to spend a little vacation in a dry climate for once. And so we went to West Texas, and if you know anything about West Texas, you get there. In fact, I just heard someone describing this. Someone had just recently moved there, and I had, I, just this last week, I, heard, I overheard them telling others about it, and they were saying, what is it like? They're like, oh, it's literally just a desert. That's all. It's, it's just an ugly desert. That was their description. And it, it, I don't know about ugly, but it is a desert. It is a desert. It's dry. It is a parched land going. You're, you're walking through. We, we went kind of hiking, and, and as we're walking through, you're thinking, it is incredibly hot. <laughs> you're thinking, why, how is this enjoyable? Why are we doing this right now? It is incredibly hot. But then you can't help but notice as you're walking by, you see these beautiful, blooming flowers all over the place. In this scorching, hot, parched, desert wasteland, wilderness, yet there's this beautiful life blooming in the midst of it. It's incredible. As you're there, you, be, you begin to learn, how are those little plants doing that? How are they doing? I'm walking and I'm completely parched. How are they thriving in this desert wasteland? And you learn something about them. Those little roots, we joke about this, like they're not these little urban city roots, you know, these little city plants. These are rural plants who have planted their little roots deep into the ground to permeate the depths below them and reach vast out, stretching out to grab any, any nutrient possible. So these little plants could have these incredible root systems among them. And that is how, that is how these little plants bloom beautifully in the midst of a scorching desert. Their roots. The roots. The Christian life is lived in a sin-broken world, and we are like those little desert plants living life in a scorched and parched and weary land living in the harshest conditions possible, living in the desert wilderness of the world. Listen, listen to these statistics from the past year. These are just the past year about Christians living life in the desert land of this world. Last year, there were almost 6,000 Christians that were killed for their faith. Last year alone, there were almost 4,000 Christians who were abducted from their families and homes for being a Christian. Last year alone, there were just over 5,000 churches and Christian-owned buildings that were destroyed. Last year, there were just under 5,000 believers that were de detained unfairly without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 312 million Christians in the world experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination for following Christ, for simply just being a Christian. The last one that kind of is just grabs at me, one in seven, this was last year, one in seven Christians worldwide experienced high levels of persecution. One in seven. Think about that in this room. One in seven. One in seven Christians experienced high levels of of persecution. That these, these are just the numbers that we know of, right? They're just the numbers that we know of. But on top of that, that doesn't include the daily sufferings of, a, of the Christian for just merely living in a sin-broken world with broken bodies and broken minds and broken hearts, right? So the suffering that the Christian experiences is incredible. The Christian life is lived in a desert wilderness where suffering is experienced. And if you're not suffering now, you're not suffering now. The odds are that if you live long enough, you will. You will experience some form of affliction and suffering. But today's passage, today's passage is a rooting passage. It's a rooting passage. It's a passage that the Christian is intended to listen and to hear and to tuck away in our little hearts and then to, to plant our roots of our lives deep within and just root ourselves within as we live life in the desert. 
It's a passage that's meant to give you life in the desert so that you then, we then, bloom beautiful praise in the midst of a desert wilderness. Amen? That's what this passage is. And you may be thinking, I heard a lot of wrath in that passage. How is that blooming praise in this? Well, you will see. You will see. So, so may the Lord, may the Lord by His Spirit root your faith deep in His Word today that you may be that little desert plant just rooted in Christ, blooming beautiful praise to God in the midst of the scorching desert. So first, first thing we see that kind of gets us there, that plants our roots deep within, is this in verse 5. It should be up on the screen. God's evidence and the Christian's suffering. God's evidence and the Christian's suffering. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul, just a, a bit of background, Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonian church, and we know something by reading when the church was started. When the church began, it's, it's recorded in Acts chapter 16 and 17. I'd encourage you, go read that. It's incredible. That church was planted in the midst of great difficulty. So we know by reading Acts 16 and 17, and then in reading the letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that it was a very difficult place to be a Christian. It was a very difficult place to be a Christian. Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, had to escape out of town after just three weeks in the city because of intense persecution. So the church was planted in three weeks, and now he's writing these letters back to this young little church. Isn't that incredible? So imagine a young church. We sit in here and we say, man, we, we know all, there's all types of mess happening in the church, right? In our hearts, there's all types of insecurities and sufferings and all sorts of things. Can you imagine a young, a young church, three weeks old to a degree? Now, Second Thessalonians, the church is probably a little older than that at this point. But can you imagine young believers who are being shaken? They've come to faith, but now they're being persecuted. I thought people were supposed to like me now that I want to live for their good. No, no, the opposite is happening. So they need instruction to help them understand, to help make sense of why is life hard if I have come to the king of the universe? Why is life hard now? So Paul is writing these letters to help inform the church. And in verses 3 through 4, Paul is celebrating the Lord continuing to grow these Christians and mature them in faith and love. And he's celebrating their perseverance in the faith in the midst of great affliction. And so after recognizing this work of grace in the Christians' lives, that they are growing, there's stuff good happening there. After recognizing that, he then gets to verse 5, and he makes this statement in regards to their growing and persevering and remaining in the faith despite very hard trials. He says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. That line sort of makes you think, pause for a second, say, what does he mean? Christians suffering, enduring difficulty, yet persevering and growing in love and faith, how is that evidence of the righteous judgment of God? You have to kind of ask yourself that can be a bit tricky. It's almost as if Paul here in that little line begins to use courtroom language. Courtroom language. So in a court when you, where you have a judge, what do you have? You have two sides and you have evidence that begins to be presented, right? Evidence that either is going to prove someone innocent or, so, or is going to prove someone guilty. Evidence is put before the judge so that then the judge makes a righteous, a right judgment, right? So it's presented before the judge. And so what you have in this moment is as if evidence. And so what Paul is doing in these verses is holding up evidence for the good and right judgment of God, this universal judge who in the following verses is going to reveal just what that judgment is. The whole rest of this passage, he's going to reveal what is the judgment that the judge of the universe is going to make. And here is the, the reality. It is a righteous judgment. It's a righteous judgment. It is not a wrong judgment. We live in a world that can say, well, how can God do that? You don't talk about sin and wrath. That, that's too confronting. I want to believe in a simply kind God. And so we live in a world that wrestles with these things. But the verse here says, no, 
any judgment that he makes is righteous. It's good. And so Paul says, I'm holding up evidence. What you've experienced is evidence for the righteous judgment of God that we're about to talk about. So Paul's presenting this evidence that, that these Christians really do belong to Christ. They really do belong to Christ, that, that they really do have a genuine faith, and it's being shown by their enduring in the faith, in the midst of affliction, that their faith is genuine faith, and it's being proven by their willingness to suffer for following Jesus. And here's the reality. People will not suffer for someone they do not love. They will not lay their lives down for something they truly don't believe. So this suffering somehow is beginning to prove something. We'll talk more about that in a second. People won't, won't suffer and hang around the church when the church is under the heat of the world. I think you're seeing that right now, aren't you? You're seeing that in the world that we live in. Churches are shutting down, taking heat, and they're shutting down. The world's getting tight and clamping on us. And some churches are saying, that's enough. I'm not, I, don't, I didn't sign up for that. I just want to go sit in my house, eat my food, read my Bible, and not be persecuted at all. But he's saying here, no, the church, the church is experiencing this, and something's happening as the church is living vibrantly in their lives. They are experiencing something, and it's proving that they actually belong to Jesus. So for those that are being afflicted for their faith, yet enduring and growing and remaining in the faith and continue to love Jesus and continue to want more of Jesus, it's proof that they actually belong to Jesus. And for those that are doing the affliction, those that are rejecting Jesus and so rejecting God's people, for them, there is this evidence being stored up for the righteous judgment of God that is terrifying that you will hear later. Think about that. I, I just, so the, oh, when we were at the pastor's conference, we had, we rode in a couple Ubers. So we got a ride from the airport to here or there. And one Uber got to share the gospel with the guy. His name's Jose. And he's like, I'm a Christian. And he was so encouraged. I said, oh, Jose, you should come tonight. He said, can I come to the pastor's conference? It doesn't matter. Just come. And he did. Him and his wife came, and we celebrated. We worshiped. It was wonderful. The next Uber we got in, his name was Hebert from Haiti, and shared the gospel, and his response was the complete opposite. He kind of laughed and mocked me and was hard to the gospel. And we get out, and Danielle says, whoa, what a, what a difference. What a difference there was. Yes, to one, there was life in the gospel. To the other, it was foolishness. And they mocked it, and they rejected it. And we can feel like, well, I don't want to experience that. I don't want to experience that rejection. But no, here's the reality. Here's what's so scary about those moments. They're not just rejecting you or me. They are storing up for themselves evidence for God's righteous judgment on that day. That God, when Jesus pierces the clouds and the trumpets blast and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at that moment, Hebert will say, oh dear, oh my Oh my, that silly guy in my Uber that day, he was right. And if at that point he has not come to know Christ, there is evidence stored up. And God is responding, his righteous judgment, and he's right for what he will do on that day. Whoa! Yikes! Think of it that way. Think of it. There is evidence happening either way when we share the gospel with someone. Paul describes this in Philippians 1, and I think it serves because this passage can be kind of confusing if you're just reading through it. Can say, well, does it really mean that? Well, he says basically the same thing in Philippians 1. I think it serves us to interpret the word by using the word. He's not saying anything new here. Listen to this. Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Isn't that what he told the Thessalonians? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. Now listen, this is a clear sign, evidence, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. 
and that from God. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying in 2 Thessalonians. They're living a life in a manner that is according to and worthy of the kingdom, along with their persevering faith in the midst of trial, is a clear sign. It is evidence of their being genuine believers. It's a clear sign of their coming salvation. It's the, it's the proof in the pudding, right? You can just say you love Christ and prove it by loving Christ when it's hard. That's, what, that's what's happening here. And for those who are doing the frightening of God's people, who are afflicting them, it is a clear sign or evidence of their coming destruction should they not turn away from their wickedness and turn to Christ. So enduring suffering or affliction or trouble isn't a sign of God's rejection of you, church. We can think it is, can't we? <laughs> we can be so tempted to say, to kind of join in and say, Jesus, what I belong to you now. I belong to you. You're the king of the universe. You're, how vast is your love? We just sang about it, but why am I dealing with this? Why am I experiencing these trials and this heartache? Shouldn't life just be peachy now? And on top of that, we can kind of be tempted. We, we would never, never say, like in our church, we would never say, hey, we're not prosperity preaching people, prosperity gospel preaching. Guys, it is big. It's here in this city. It's here in this city, and it's definitely in San Antonio. It is all over the place, prosperity gospel. But here's the deal. We may not say, we may not say I believe in the prosperity gospel, but we functionally can live like we do. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. We can say, whenever we're saying, shouldn't, isn't, aren't I supposed to live my best life right now? Shouldn't everything just work together? Isn't it supposed to, I should just be happy all the time now? Why am I enduring cancer and trouble? And why are my kids obedient? And it's hard at 5.30 in the morning, they're already yelling. And why does this person hate me for no reason? Shouldn't life be great and grand? That is the prosperity preaching gospel creeping into your own heart and mind. The Bible never says that. The Bible says it's going to be hard for you. The Bible never promises that, but it promises some wonderful things to help you in the midst of the trouble. Wonderful truths like what Derek was mentioning earlier, that Psalm 23, we have a shepherd who will never leave you or forsake you. A shepherd who doesn't say he's going to lead you around the valley, Right? Like, I would just wish that would be rewritten to lead me around the valley, just the long way. Just the long way. No, but he says, he says, who will grab your hand and lead you through the valley. That is the promises and sweet assurance of the Christian. Amen? Oh, that's what we cling to. Oh, boy. So, so we may not believe the prosperity gospel, but how often are we living functionally like, like you do? Well, Jesus, I came to you, so don't I deserve ease, or things that just go well. God's word says no. No, no, the best is yet to come. Just hide that in your heart, precious saints. We have that on our wall. I'm so forgetful. You probably, if you knew me here, you know that. So forgetful. And so we put things on calendars, and we put things all over the walls in our house, and we put quotes up because I need them. I need to remember those truths. And one of those little quotes that we have is, the best is yet to come. So when things come crashing on you today, you remember, nothing's happening that shouldn't be happening. The best is yet to come. There will be a day when Christ will make all things new again. And it will be perfected. There will be no more sin. And my little kid will be playing by a snake, apparently. That's what the Word says. That's incredible. And there's all sorts of things happening there. There's a best day that's yet to come when we will know Him in fullness and be, and be with Him in His presence completely. That is the day you're to be looking forward to. Our hearts are not to be set upon this day. Our hearts are to be looking to that day. i got to keep going. I'm completely off here. So... Oh boy. So in the trial, somehow, tuck this away in your heart, somehow, some way, the Lord is doing something divine in the midst of it. He is working out his plans of good for his glory in the midst of your trouble. What the enemy intends to crush you with, your faithful God frustrates his plans and intends to use it for his glory and your good. 
And your good doesn't always mean, right, that it's going to be the way you think of good. Growing in Christ-likeness is good. Trusting God more is good. Loving your Savior more than you love the comforts of this world is good. So the good the Lord is doing in frustrating the plans of the enemy in the midst of the trial and working his plans that he promises for your good and his glory, he will do it. And so just tuck that away in your heart now. And it's as if, it really is as if the Lord is, is through these verses, is taking our understanding of suffering, our theology, our belief system of how we view trouble and saying, I'm just going to turn it upside down for you. I'm going to turn it upside down for you. For those who love the passions and pleasures of this world, they will be received by the world and life will be peachy. But they will be rejected by God. That is terrifying. That turns our world upside down. For those who love God, it says, they will experience rejection by the world, but yet received by their God. Now, I'm not making that up. That's in the Word. Listen to this. John 15, the words of your precious Savior to you, church. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, oh my, Praise him for that. Amen. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Turning our world upside down, isn't it? Because I don't we all love to be loved by the world? When coworkers hate us, like, why, why does everybody hate me? I'm such a likable guy. I try to be kind to everybody. I'm trying to bring lunch to people, and they just hate me. We experience that with our kids. It just devastates my heart. My poor little kids, they've been homeschooled their whole life, and they go to school, and there's some kids who don't like them, and they're unkind to them. And it wrecks our heart. Like, man, it's pretty, we, we want to be loved. We've had to teach our children, not everybody's going to love you, sweeties. But if you turn to Jesus, the most important one does. We live in a world that will hate us, but we love to be loved, and so we have to wrestle with that. First Peter says essentially the same thing, but it kind of gives us a glimpse of how God is using the trial. Listen to this, 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7. through He says, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? The trouble is producing something. This tested genuineness so that the genuineness of our faith bubbles up. That I don't just love Jesus for what he can give me. I love him for who he is. I love him for who he is and what he gives me in himself. Salvation. Right? We love Jesus and that genuineness of faith begins to bubble up as the flames of trouble begin to kind of go. And, and it results in, the result of it all is praise. Praise and glory of our Savior. That is amazing. That is amazing. In turning to Christ, we will be rejected and counted as unworthy and unwelcome members of society. Unworthy and unwelcome members of society. But though we, re though we be rejected here and now, we are being counted as worthy and welcome members of the kingdom of Christ. Amen? So that frees us from wanting to be accepted and loved by the people of this world. It frees us from fearing rejection or affliction. It frees us from despair when we endure trouble. It compels us to endure the affliction 
faithfully, knowing that it is this great proving ground or refiner's fire where genuine faith is purified and revealed, resulting in praise. Man, I could just sit there for the next 20 minutes, brothers and sisters. Oh, my. Oh, my. But the hope of the Christian is not solely in the fact that God is using our suffering for our good. It's not solely that. Okay, he's using this for good. Thank you. But there's a finish line, precious saints. And the hope of the Christian is that there will be a day when all of the trouble will stop, when it will be no more. We look to that day. That is the hope of the Christian, that one day he will bring sweet relief to his people. And not only that, but he will bring repayment to those causing the trouble. So second, second point, verses 6 through 7, we see God's justice and the Christian's relief. God's justice and the Christian's relief. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through 7. Since indeed God considers it just, just, right, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He considers it right, just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And when? When will this take place? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This passage makes it clear that the Lord wants his people to know that though we experience rejection and suffering in every form of injustice now, because that's what sin is. That's what sin is. It's a world of injustice, right? What is, what is just is right. And what does sin do? It makes things wrong. So people live wrong towards one another. It's unjust. It's unjust. And there's, there's, it, it seems like there's not punishment yet. And so we live in this injustice, this rejection and suffering and pain. He, this, this passage makes it clear that he is not absent from your affliction. He cares about it all because he loves his people and he cares about what is right, what is just. Have you ever been sinfully wronged? Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever, have you ever known someone who's been wronged? And it makes you feel sick, doesn't it? It feels like there's nothing I can do about this. There was a point, my family, my dad's from Mexico, and we would go down and visit family in deep Mexico, and we just didn't, we stopped doing it because of reasons what I'm about to tell you. So we're driving down, I'm in the back seat, I'm a young elementary kid, we're back there and we get pulled over by this military people in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Mexico. No one else to be found. And we're there in this little SUV, and my dad gets pulled out of the car at gunpoint, and they essentially rob us. And they say, either my dad's going to pay money, or we're not going anywhere. And I'm there as a kid thinking, what, what's, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my dad? And it, What's going to happen to us? We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no one to help. There's no, where is the justice in a sense, right? Where, where is help? The people who are supposed to be helping us to make it through safe travel are the ones harassing us right now. The ones who have my dad that I have no idea what's going to happen to him in this moment. How is this good? How is this right? Helpless. No idea what's going to happen. Is this it for us? They eventually obviously let my dad go and we, we left. But things like that happen all the time, precious saints, and, and in different ways. There's injustice, there's sin, wickedness of sin that seems to go unpunished. Why are these verses so important for Christians in Thessalonica and for us today? Why? Because can't we be so tempted in the midst of experiencing things done wrong to us, especially at the hands of other people, to question, God, where are you? 
what are you doing here? Is this just? Is this right? Where is your justice? Where is your mighty right hand guarding and keeping your people? It's not right. We live in a world where I'm hated at work just for being a person. It's because people don't like you. They don't like the way you talk or something. I've experienced that personally. Oh, my. It's not right that people can just blatantly lie about me on other, to others. And you, I'm talking about all of us, right? How many times have you experienced that? It's not right that I'm accused of something I didn't do. It's not right that a little child gets taken away at the playground by some stranger. It's not right that Christians all over the world have to sing praise in whispers and in the dark because if they sing too loud to the God of the universe, they'll be arrested. It's not right when Christ's people, for simply loving Christ and wanting His Word to fill the earth, are tied to poles and lit on fire. It's not right. It's not right. And you, you can say, Lord, where, where is your justice? Don't you care that this is not right? And this passage says, almost the whispers of your God says, I do care. I do care. Oh, I do care, precious one. And I'm going to do something about it. Jesus cares. But get this, this just blows me away. These things, I hope you just, you've known me, if you've known me, you know I am, I am blown away by what the word here says. I hope you get blown away, just, just amazed at the Lord and these things. He cares about you. He cares about when you're wronged. He does care. And it's like evidence being stored up. Oh, that's terrifying too. But he doesn't just care. He actually feels it. Do you remember when, when Saul, who right, is Paul, is persecuting Christians, hunting them down to kill them, right? Do you remember that? In the scripture in Acts, he's hunting Christians down. It's Christians. Jesus has died and there's resurrected. There's been the ascension and now there's this hunting of Christ's people. And on his way to Damascus to hunt down more Christians, do you remember what happens? Jesus meets him on the road, right? Jesus, the glorious Jesus, your Jesus, who loves you, who knows you, cares about you, and cares about the saints of old who on that day were being hunted. He shows up face to face, knocks Saul off of his horse, blinds him with glorious bright light, and it's him, it's him. He's the bright light. That's amazing. And what does Jesus tell him? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say that. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He says. Who are you? I perceive you are someone great. He says, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He doesn't just care about your hurts and your pains as if he's some distant God who's just watching from a distance, like, it's all right, just hang in there, young one. No, he says, I feel. It's as if it is done to me. It is an offense not just to you. It is an offense to me. That is amazing, precious saints. Don't ever feel like you don't have a mediator, that you don't have one who stands with you and who knows what you're going through when you go and you lock yourself in that room and you cry tears. You say, where is the help? And he says, oh, I'm right here. And I'm coming. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. There's a day when Jesus will come and he says, I will make everything right a day of justice to repay with affliction those who caused the affliction and to give sweet relief, his word says. To bring relief, precious saints. You know what I love? That word, that word, listen to it in this way. Listen to it here. It literally means rest from trouble. 
That's what relief means. We just use that word like anything. Like, oh, man, just got to cut in the grass. I'm inside. Like, man, what a relief, you know? Now he uses it here. Oh, you will have rest from all of your trouble, precious little one. Precious words there, saints. When the king is revealed from heaven, he will repay the afflictor, and he will bring sweet relief to the afflicted. So then, what, how do we live in light of that then? We can rest assured. We don't have to fight the battles that we feel like we have to fight. We feel like we've gotten into that, precious saints. Make sure that your attitudes and your thinking on things is ruled by God's word and not just what you think and feel and what everybody's doing. I think of Priscilla and Aquila. You know how they started their gospel ministry? Do you know how it started? Because they were told they had to get out of their own city. Mandates and all kinds of whatnot. And what did they do? They left. Okay, Lord, do your thing. (laughs) Wherever you take us, you be exalted and glorified. And hence then the history of Priscilla and Aquila, the gospel mission. We don't have to fight these battles on our own or feel like we have to take offense on our own. Instead, what does Romans 12 say? Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Precious saints, they weren't living a cushy life. These words weren't written to cushy life people. There was great trouble. Christians being tied to poles all over the place. Horrific things put into coliseums. And animals let loose on them. Repay no one evil for evil, little ones. That's radical, isn't it? You know why? Because it reflects Jesus. And didn't he do that? Doesn't it reflect him? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Stay with me. Hang with me. We're almost done. I'll speed up here. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Not just those who like you. Agree with you, he says, in the sight of all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, what are we supposed to do? If your enemy is hungry, you don't go smack him in the face, put a pie, If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Feed him. Radical. If he is thirsty, you don't heat up some water and then take it out to him in the blazing sun. Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. They will say, I don't even know why I hate this person they themselves will be tormented on their own. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how you live while you wait. We got to keep going. Oh my, I'm way behind. Verses 8 through 10, God's judgment and the Christian's joy. God's judgment and the Christian's joy. He says, Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Oh my, oh my. These, these verses are meant to sturdy the Christian. They're, so how, how in the world are these verses meant to sturdy the heart of the Christian? Here's what we're aware of. The king is coming, and when he comes, he will come as a mighty warrior and a glorious redeemer. A mighty warrior and a glorious redeemer. A mighty warrior wielding his powerful judgment upon all evil and evildoers, suffering the punishment of eternal destruction, never-ending pain and affliction. I think of Lazarus and Abraham. Do you remember that? Lazarus, who says, just give me a drink, a drop of water on my tongue. I am afflicted. No. No. 
rejected, after living a life of rejecting Jesus and his good news message and rejecting Jesus' people, now they will know what it is like to be rejected by Jesus. After a lifetime of rejecting him, and yet Jesus pouring out his common grace upon them. Right, I heard, I heard this old, I love Charles Spurgeon, this old preacher a long time ago. He has this example where he says that the rain falls on the grass and the rocks. Rain falls on the grass and the rocks. That's God's common grace, his goodness to the world. It falls on the grass and the rocks and think of people. Some soak it in and love him for who he is, love his grace, and others are like rocks that just receiving his goodness yet hating God. That's what's being talked about here. After a lifetime of God's common grace, allowing them to live and breathe and eat and be married and have children and have a home and a job and have sunny days and a cool breeze, and there will be no more sunny days, no more waking up to the birds chirping and drinking your sweet coffee. No more pleasure to be indulged in on that day. On that day, all the grace will be removed. All the grace removed. All the good, the life-giving presence of the Lord and His beautiful glory that's made visible in the beauty of creation. On that day, it will be the wrath of God Himself. The goodness of God pulled away and the wrath of God given. Terrifying. Terrifying. But on that day, he will also come as glorious Redeemer. Glorious Redeemer. Paul says that for those who have believed, those who have heard the same gospel message that was rejected and counted as foolishness, that they on that day will receive glorious life and joy and relief. He, Jesus, will finish what he started. He will save his people to the uttermost. We will no longer see in part the fullness of his glory will be made visible as we behold him face to face. And the word says we will marvel. We will marvel at him that day. I can't even imagine what it'll be like when his glory and beauty and power and might, when he first came with angels singing, oh, joy has come to the world as a little baby. And this day, on this day, the angels will declare with loud trumpet blast, the king has come again. We will see him in his might and power. And it says we will marvel. Oh, I look forward to that day, precious saints. I can't tell you. I honestly say this. I honestly, honestly say this. There are so many times I just pray, Jesus, I just want you to come. I just want to see you face to face. I just want to know you fully. I think on that day, I think on that day, we will marvel at his great might as the king returns. But I also think, precious saints, I think we will marvel in a different way too. On that day, we're, we're told in Revelation 20, that it, it will be as if all the dead, right? Every single one will stand before the great white throne. And it's, it's almost it's just this picture of each one. And, and it says that one book, that there are two books. There's one book that records life. All of my days recorded in a book. And it will be opened and read aloud for all to hear. Every single one of us. How terrifying is that? Every single terrible thought I've had, every single thing I have said when I thought it was hidden behind closed doors, he told us this would happen. He says what is hidden in the dark will be shouted on rooftops. He, tell, he tells us that day will come, and it will come, precious saints, when we stand before the host of heaven, and every single deed is read aloud, and we will tremble. I really do believe it will be trembling. We will, we will tremble at the might of what's happening and the humility of being stirred. I am laid bare once and for all. But do you know what else happens? Do you know what else happens on that day? It says, and then another book is opened. The Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's Book of Life, precious saints. And the names of those whose, whose names are written there, read aloud. Precious saints, you know what we will marvel at? We will say, on that day, we will say, oh, I, I know what I deserve. 
I know what I have done my whole life. I deserve what they are getting. But this book, but that book in my Savior's hands declares forgiven. And the one who holds it, the Lamb, the very Lamb of God, taken my sin, all that was read aloud, yes, it is true, but all of that was put on Him so that I then can say, oh, I belong to Him. Forgiven. Forgiven. I'm here because of Him. That's it. I'm just here because of Him. And I think in that day, you know where the marveling will happen? It will happen in that moment. And we will marvel and say, I don't deserve this. But oh, because of him, what glorious grace. What glorious grace. And we will join the host of heaven in singing praise of our glorious Savior. Can you imagine that day? The most humbling, trembling of days. Yet the most joyful of days. I think think of Mount Sinai when God shows up and the people say, oh my, he's too much. It's too much. This is terrifying. But Moses said, don't be afraid in that way. That's a sinful fear that moves you away from him. No, he says, says, come. Come and be afraid. (laughs) Come Come with a right fear. It's this rejoicing and trembling that's married together and we will know it even on that day. Oh my, and I look forward to that day, precious thing. Forgiven. Forgiven. Paul ends with a prayer. Verses 11 through 12. He says, God's power, the Christian's resolve, and Christ's glory. Listen to this prayer for you, precious saints, until that day. Until that beautiful day. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And you need his power to help you do good in the midst of affliction. You need his power to live by faith in the midst of trouble. You can't do it on your own. And so Paul prays for the church. Verse 12, so that, why? So that we can just make it through this life? No, he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. In him you find streams of life in the desert, precious saints. As you fix your mind and your heart, as you root yourself in Christ and what he will accomplish on that day, It assures your heart for today. It comforts your heart in the midst of today. It sturdies you for today. It awakens you that I am to walk in the good works God has prepared beforehand for those in Him. It compels us to live a life that reflects Jesus to the praise of His glory in the midst of great trouble and difficulty. And it sets our hearts on the hope of what's to come. The best is yet to come, precious saints. Life in the desert. Here, Isaiah, last, very last thing, precious saints, you have hung in there. Isaiah 43, 20 through 21. It was this great, where would it be? Would it be physical, literal streams in the desert or would it be life in Christ in the midst of the desert? Listen, Isaiah 43. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we look to that day. And Lord, help us as we await that day. That is a terrifying yet glorious day. Root our hope in you for that day that you will come again and you will gloriously reign and we will marvel at the salvation we have received, all undeserved. It was all grace and we will declare salvation in Christ alone. Lord, would you root our hope and joy in those truths today to live according to your word and way. 
Oh, Lord, do this. Strengthen the weary. If there are those here who have been little rebellious sheep, doing however they want to live, responding to people terribly, Lord, I pray you would just correct them. That you would stir and compel them. Reflect Christ in the way you respond to difficulty. Lord, I pray for those who come and are weary and burdened by trouble. Lord, would you comfort them that you care and you know their trouble and you are with them through it. And Lord, for each of us, may you fix our hearts on eternity. The best is yet to come. Look to that day. Live in light of that day. And may you do this by your power. We cannot do it on our own. We are weak little sheep. May you empower and enliven faith within us to exalt you and praise us as we live life in the desert. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. Amen.